Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. It's that time again. It is time for the year-end movie wrap-up for 2022. I do an episode like this every year, and every year I'm joined by my good friend Glenn Gaylord. He's the senior film critic at The Queer Review. And like last year, we are joined by Drew Drogi. He's an actor and writer and host of the podcast Minor Revelations. So, like last year, we got together on Zoom and talked about all of our favorite movies and least favorite movies from 2022, and it was so jam-packed and fun-filled that we're dividing it into two episodes, and this is part one. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by me. Pretty much, I do it. <laughs> so if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, there are two ways you can do that. You can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. I always appreciate that. It helps me cover the expenses that come with doing the podcast. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's a collective of shows that are part of the Derek and Romaine uh, podcast network. And for a monthly fee, you get my show two days earlier and a bunch of other Great content from DNR Studios, and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. And now, let's get to the podcast. This is part one of the 2022 year-end movie wrap-up with Glenn Gaylord and Drew Drogi. Joining me now are two of my favorite people to talk about movies with, Glenn Gaylord and Drew Drogi. Glenn is the senior film critic for The Queer Review. Drew is an actor and a writer and a host of the podcast, Minor Revelations. Guys, we're back. We're back in business. We're back. Woo. All right. So we all have different ways of thinking about movies over the past year. I know, uh, Glenn, you have a moment's way of looking at it. I like to find movies that I had a really great time at that maybe aren't getting Oscar love because they're not that kind of movie. And, um, and Drew, you have your own way of thinking about the movies of no the process. last year. I don't you have know. No process. <laughs> so we're just going to kind of throw out movies and take turns doing that, and then I'll weigh in. So... Glenn, why don't you start us off and tell us how you like to think about movies when you look back at the year? Well, what I do on the Queer Review, with the Queer Review every year, is I do an article called Moments Out of Time, which is continuing the tradition of the same name of an article that used to be um, in a magazine that I cherished every year called Film Comment. That was a snooty magazine. I remember that. I I remember picking it up when I was like in college. Well, growing up in small town Ohio, 90% of the movies were ones I would never, ever be able to see. Right. But it got me interested enough because they would talk about either favorite shots or lines of dialogue or just a moment in a film. It, the film could have been trash, but it, this great moment existed. And I believe that is true in all types of films. And so it always stuck with me that, you know, even a terrible film has that moment that you never forget. Right. Uh, and I like doing that better than top 10 lists. Yeah. Uh, it made me appreciate every type of film. And so uh, that's my approach. Did you want me to start off yeah. with a movie? Give us a movie at a time, a moment at a time from a movie. I don't think that this is the best movie of the year, but it's certainly my best experience watching a movie of all time, which is RRR. Yes, uh, I'm going in hard on that. We could just talk about yeah. that for an hour and a half. Like, uh, okay, so, what, okay. so yeah, break it down. Well, RRR, for those uh, who haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, uh, but highly recommend if you have the opportunity to watch this in a theater with an audience that's rabid. I haven't seen since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They know every line. They know every dance move. And it is a thrilling blockbuster entertainment, unlike anything that we've been producing lately over here. You know, this is uh, a film from India 
and starring two of their biggest stars. Uh, it is just an action-packed epic of unreal action that could never exist in real life, that gravity doesn't come into right. play. Um, it's got musical moments that are incredible, and I'm glad it got recognized by the Academy for its best song. Uh, and the moment for me of this film, and basically the entire film is the moment, because it's just one thing after another. But there's a moment in the film where a truck full of animals springs out, a zoo full, springs yeah. out with one of our heroes to raid this colonizing, evil colonizing castle, basically. And just the shot alone is enough to thrill you to the back of the theater. Uh, just an incredible slow-motion shot of animal explosion, and no real animals were used. Uh, yeah, so and they're all CGI animals, and yet it's still thrilling, right? It, it, it yeah. looks real enough, but it's also hyper-real, but it doesn't matter that they're not real or something. It's the way they this do it. Does not, this movie doesn't really swim in reality, even though it's based on some historic fact. It's all about the movie movie of it all for me. Yeah, I love it. Um, Drew, did you see RRR? I loved this movie. I'm obsessed also, with it. That's all I want to I talk about. I also got to see it with an audience, which was, like, unbelievable. Where what did I you love go? About this movie is I, I saw it at the DGA, like a screening. Oh, and, right on. And, okay. Did you, were, and, they, were there a Q&A? Were the actors there? There was a Q&A, and, I, <sighs> and the, the actors were there, and the director was there. Oh. And... The, okay, so this movie took 320 days to shoot. Yeah. The Natsu Natsu number took 65 days to shoot that number. Yeah. And they said that he kept stopping and making them go again. And they, I mean, they're just like, the, the actors were like, this guy's a madman. He was yeah. a tyrant. And they were smiling and laughing. They were like, we were so mad when we were shooting it. But you, you watch it now in the precision and it is so unbelievable that that it almost with all the CGI animals, it looks like the whole movie is like created in this like a brilliant like vacuum. But what I love about the movie is that it is unabashedly committed. Every frame is fully committed. It is so over the top in the, in the comedy and the, and the drama in the action. I mean, you have people picking up motorcycles and swinging them around and like tigers flying through the air and, the entire thing is so cinema, like in a way, the power of what a movie can be. I was fully invested and I love, like, I hate when people use the phrase over the top as a bad thing. When it's fully committed and I believe every moment of it, I, I was there. I was like, it was a fantasy. I, I loved it. I'm so glad we're starting with that movie. I'm glad that you got to saw it, see it in a live theater because everyone – I saw it three times in a theater with the D director Q&A. And every time I would see there was a screening, I would just buy, you know, five tickets and just tell people. You know, like I, it, was like a, it was like a religion that I was trying to convert people to. Um, yeah. But I loved the love between the two heroes. It's a friendship yeah. story and it's unabashed. And you can't imagine – you know, like in Fast and the Furious, like Dom and Paul, like they were kind of bros, but they were not. I don't know. I love Fast and the Furious. I have to say, but, I love. But they don't movies. express their. They weren't afraid yeah. about showing love, platonic, fraternal love in a really. Una, we're not trying to be cool. We're not trying to make sure, but we're straight. Like it wasn't homoerotic, but it was front and center with this love between these two friends, and the yeah. actors were fully committed to it, and. Glenn, you compared it to Rocky Horror Picture Show, but when you go to Rocky Horror, 
you kind of have people telling you what to say and what to do. This movie brings it out of you. You're going to stand up and share whether you've been there before or not. Like, I, I don't need screaming. to know the lines. I was carrying, you, I was it so just, in. You, you, yeah. you, you don't need to know the script. You just respond to what you see on the screen. So, um, yeah, I'm obsessed with it. I bought T-shirts for my it. Only, my yeah. only gripe with that is the – or all the, the the English actors are a little too broad. <laughs> yeah, it was well, something weird about like I and I know we needed villains, but that's my only thing. If I had to say, like they're a little bit. Well, like, the, you know, I know, and I have fantasies about interviewing the director and I would how I would ask my questions. I daydreamed about this for days, but I would want to know because the British villains were pitched at a certain point where the lines were a little too like strumpet crumpet. G T T and like yeah, 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 yeah. I want him to be But you know what? That's but I, I mean, it was argue, intentional, right? It is intentional. I, I do think it's intentional. I do think it's like in the years of white cinema where they make all the brown people be these stereotypical, you know, yes. bells and whistles. What do you expect from that culture? Well, they're gonna <laughs> give it to you and nothing more. You know, and I it, it was, was really fun that. to see the white people be so you know, relegated to being such stereotypes. So that I that I I thought was really awesome right yeah i felt like the director told allison duty to twirl her mustache right yeah it was like <laughs> that hit that, that villain level and i love that yeah. the british actors all looked like a slightly famous more famous british actor there was the Kristen stewart <laughs> one and there was the rosamund pike one but they were the, <laughs> the ones that you weren't quite rosamund pike like i liked everything about it um and i followed those was our main villain Charles Dance? Maybe he could have been. Could have been. <laughs> oh, he, he was Gary. very Charles. Dance. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I love it so much, and uh, I loved watching the press tour when they were trying to get that Oscar nomination. And um, I bet they were. I bet they were like eleven or. 10, I bet they were very close to getting that in that Best Picture. Um, I'm mainly. I mean, I, I would have loved to ever get a Best Picture. I'm really bummed it didn't get a Best Director nomination. I mean. Yeah. Because I thought it was a masterpiece as, yeah. uh, from a, as a, you know. Yeah. So if you have a chance to see that movie in the theater, do it. Uh, it's three of the best nights I've had ever in a, in a, in a cinema. And, it, and there's, it's three hours. There's an intermission. And at, at the halfway point, you're like, what are they going to do next? Like, how are they going to top yeah. what they just did? It's just a mind blower. So I love it. Yeah, that's, that's the top of my list. But your moment, Glenn, is when the animals crash the party. Yeah, just, I'm randomly picking it because, like Drew said, every shot is committed. Yeah. It's just that he put so much life into every moment of that movie. There's not a dull second to be had. It's a way of thinking, I think. I think he, you know, if I were to interview him, I would, I would say, do you just sit around in a in a room and think, you know what would be cool? Is if a muscly dude threw a motorcycle on a balcony. <laughs> and then it started a fire or so. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, like you feel like everything starts off. You know, it'd be really cool. Like if you've that's, that has that feeling to it. So yeah, I love it. All right. RRR, ladies and gentlemen, I'm hoping those guys show up at the Oscars and do not to not to. They have to, they have Come to, on. and it has to be the two dudes. They'll do it. Right. 100%. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, and every, every time I watch it, I'm like, Oh, he's my favorite. <gasps> no, he's my favorite. No, he's my favorite because they're both wonderful. Anyways, uh, Ram Sharan, and the other guy has a kind of complicated name, but I think people call him Tarek, so that's why I call him. And um, do you know Mark Malkin, who works for um, Variety? He's a red carpet journalist and does a podcast. Oh. 
um, gay guy. He's been in entertainment journalism for a long time. And he uh, interviewed them, and I guess on the red carpet, and Tarek, the, the actor that plays... Um, not the not the soldier, the guy that the the comes to find the girl. Um, he gave him a bow tie on the red carpet as a gift. He got a gift from an RRR. Oh, I'm so wow. jealous. I know. And bow ties are like uh, Mark's thing. So, I mean, that's I'm envious of that moment. But you know what? It just shows that they're sweet. Dare guys. to dream. Dare to dream. All right, <laughs> Drew. What movie do you want to start talking about? Oh. um... Oh, we can just go down on my list. The first one I have is something that I, I would, I, I don't know if I had a favorite movie this year, but something that I thoroughly loved and was blown away by was Tar. Um, right Interesting. Todd Field's film starring Kate Blanchett and Nina Haas. It is, it's really like, I, I've never seen anything told that way. I think it's an audacious film. I think it is a, an excruciating, slow-moving train wreck uh, of a of a of a person, you know, yeah. that I love watching. Uh, it's an evisceration. It's it 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 what it says about uh, power and misogyny and what what how how much it corrupts. Uh, I also think it's Kate Blanchett's greatest performance. Uh, as much as I love her in everything else, I think it's truly the most challenging thing she's ever done. Also, I, I always love Nina Haas, and I think she gives a towering performance as well. The ending shot, which we don't have to say if people haven't seen it, but it's is like gobsmacking. Cuckoo I was crazy just, pants. It's what? Cuckoo crazy pants. That I don't remember shot. what the ending shot is. The ending <laughs> shot? Yeah. In, Acting in out Mongolia? in charades, so we won't ruin the, we won't spoil okay. it. I saw it a while ago when it first came out. I don't remember. Oh, God. I just... I found it like the entire thing. It was three hours that I, I it was I, I, weirdly how I could watch, I could watch another six hours of that happening. I didn't want it to be over. I just was like riveted. I love what they don't show you. I love the gaps in time. And I was like, wait, what? And I was, I was on board. I thought it was just thrilling. And I love Todd Field. I love that he's made three films, all of which I think are incredible incredible films so, so he, he did in the bedroom and what was the one and in little the middle? children little children with uh kate winslet yeah yeah and patrick, and wilson. patrick wilson right on and glenn, Haley. Yeah, that's right. glenn what did you think of tar um i agree with everything drew said i can't say i enjoyed it but he did use the word excruciating so i'm not going to differ that much from <laughs> <laughs> but uh i um it's not RRR, for sure. No, I've never seen a movie like this. It's it has not- one letter, though. They have one letter in common. That's have, true. Yeah. But there's an accent over the A in That's Tars. true. That's, but uh, it's, I've never seen a movie like it. And I like its elliptical qualities where you have to do a lot of work as an audience member. And for a while there, I was put off by the exposition of it all and the names of people that we haven't met yet. And I was kept on going, have we met this character or are they talking about someone we haven't met? And I was really working hard to try to keep up with it. And then I realized that is the movie. It's making you work because it's challenging you to look at this person and go, do I even like this person that we're following around? Are they acting on, you know with good intentions. Yeah. What is happening here? And as they dissect her and it moves on, as Drew said, it's just the slow moving train wreck. You're watching a person that maybe you don't like, maybe isn't sympathetic, but you understand the, the ego and the talent there. And you have to reconcile that with all this other behavior. 
which I think we've been doing with artists for now for decades and, or maybe even longer, uh, questioning that, that, that push pull of morality versus talent. Uh, and so while I find the movie intentionally pretentious, because I think it is. Oh, it is. I think it's very aware of that. Yeah. It's aware of it and it is fantastically made and there is no taken away from her performance. I think she is phenomenal in it. Um, it's just not something that I enthusiastically love. I went, oh, okay, that was an ugly experience. That was really well done. That's right, land on it, I think. I am the sunny person who is not going to be sunny. I thought it was campy. I, I did not buy it. I thought the second they said she had an EGOT, I'm like, come on. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, she's, she lives in Berlin and she's a classical music composer and she has all of these awards and we're an EGOT. I just thought they poured it on so thick that it didn't seem like it was grounded in reality. And I, I, I didn't love her performance. I thought it was a, I feel like drag queens are going to dress up like Lydia Tarr and do the crazy <laughs> composing. I just thought it was a little ridiculous. Wow. I know. Isn't that weird? I was like, I kind of was looking, I was saw it by myself. So I was kind of looking around like, I don't know, this is, it landed on me in a weird way. I think maybe it's the EGOT thing. Because then in your head you're going, well, what was it? Was it a children's book with a score that won a Grammy? Like, well, the Grammy's easiest because she's the composer, but... Right. You know, and then she's flying in private jets and, you know, she... I don't know. I couldn't... Her level of renown seemed over the top for what she was doing. Um, mm. Yeah, and I... Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that there's a... There, I don't know that there's a person that it could be. I don't mean, I, obviously, right. when you find out what the character later... I mean, just in terms of that that status, I thought that. I mean, I will say that did rub me a little bit when they said EGOT because I do think about that in terms of those things as well. Yeah, well, um, I just went right to my head and I'm like trying to figure it out. Yeah. No, the weird. I I, I will pinpoint on little things like that early in the movie. And I go, no, I'm out because I kind of go, why didn't you why didn't you throw that? I felt like to me that was just set up to have that really bad like the arrogance that they laughed at Mel Brooks. To me, because they said like like he got like, and they mentioned other EGOT winners, and they said and Mel Brooks, and the audience like pretentiously laughed. Like Mel Brooks doesn't deserve to be an EGOT, right. you know? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. But they, you could tell the snobbery of people to be like, oh, we looked at our nose at that trash, and I feel like that's why it existed was just to show that like, you know, w- you know, it wouldn't even matter to Lydia Tarr because she's in the company with like, you know, I don't know. I felt like that was just a an excuse to show like how how arrogant. They were, but um, I liked yeah. what it was about. I liked that it was about power corrupting, whether you're a man or a woman, or a certain kind of fame and a certain kind of artistry. You think you can treat people crazily and, and like the fallout from all of that. I thought that stuff was really interesting. I just didn't buy it. I guess well, I, just I have didn't two believe, moments. Believe it was real or something. I have two moments from it. One which supports Drew's point of view, and one which supports yours, Dennis. So. <laughs> The, the moment that really swept me up in the film was when she eviscerates the student in that one long oh, sequence, which I think is phenomenal because part of you agrees with her, part of you agrees with the student. Yeah. You really are torn and you wonder, but you know that this is a moment that's going to come back to bite her in the butt. And it was just a fascinating way to set that, you know, to hang that lantern, basically. And then the camp moment that I think drag queens will be doing <laughs> for quite some time is when she confronts the student who's bullying her kid. Yeah. Talks about being the father. Well, that is, I will say that I, if I, 
that is 100% lifted from Hand That Rocks the Cradle. <laughs> right? I was like, but it thinks it's, it's, it's they, th- they think they it's the most brilliant thing, but it's Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Almost, it's almost shot for shot the same scene as that. Now, I love the Hand That Rocks the Cradle, right. and I'm on Re- Rebecca De Mornay's side in that movie. <laughs> I want her to kill more and hurt Annabella Shora more because uh, I'm 100%, you know, so yeah. maybe it just called up one of my one of my favorite, you know, movies from long ago. Well, I had heard a podcast with Matt Rogers, the com- the gay comedian, talking about that scene in particular before I saw the movie. So I might have already been on the camp train before I actually <laughs> saw the scene because I knew it was coming and I had heard it filtered through his voice and POV. But, yeah, that was a memorable moment for sure. But <laughs> I don't want Kate Blanchett to win that Oscar. I want Michelle Yeoh to win that Oscar. Oh, I disagree. Okay, we'll fair enough. I know. It's okay. Up. It's okay. I, so it's all right. It's um, going to be a gang up on you, Drew, on that one. Yeah. So forward to well, that. I love Michelle Yeoh, and I'm, I will be happy. I think she will win. I think Michelle Yeoh will win, and I'll be happy that Michelle Yeoh wins. But I, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I, the actors aren't without a problem with in that. But yeah. anyway, all right. So, um, which brings us to "Marry Me," starring Jennifer Lopez and oh God, uh, Owen Wilson. Owen, what? How far so we I've talked about this movie on this podcast multiple times. I like this movie because it was an old school rom com, but you don't know what year it is. They did they make this in two thousand and three? Owen Wilson's hair is pretty much the same. It's still J Lo, Timeless Beauty. Like it just feels like a throwback to a movie they don't make anymore, and yet it was new. And J Lo was doing crazy songs on the soundtrack and trying too hard. And I I I felt like the romance kind of worked, and I was I was in it to win it. It felt like a like the kind of movie you don't get to see very much anymore. And you walk out and you don't know what – is it is Bush going to be president when I walk out? I feel like it – you just don't know <laughs> where you are. Um, and it was just what I needed at that moment. So there's Mary Me. Did you see it, Drew? I didn't see it. I'm yeah. so sorry. That's all right. Fun. It's okay. You don't <laughs> – you don't need to be sorry. I mean, I think it's – I'm so sorry I missed Mary Me. No, no, no. I I, 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 I should have watched you know. Uh, Glenn, did you watch it? You need that. When they're well done, every yeah. – Sarah yeah. Silverman's in it, giving a little sidekick uh, humor. Yeah. Yeah. Drew, put it at the bottom of your list. <laughs> I, I, yeah. And that's my, that's my comment, Dennis. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go there with you on this one. I, I know you're. It. Did you watch it? I saw it. I okay. saw Shotgun Wedding with you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Drew, Mary I mean, Me is superior to Shotgun Wedding. I have more fun watching you watch the movie. Okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I like it. Uh, our friend Danny and I have this running joke about J-Lo rom-coms when they go in to pitch them. Because sometimes there will be a weird scene in the middle, like there was one called Second Chance or something. And in the middle, it's a normal story about a man and a woman. In the middle, she does this dance at a party or whatever, and it just turns into a full J-Lo tango. And it's oh. a little bit like, oh, so this ad exec is also a tango dancer. And, you know, and we like to imagine J-Lo and her team – pitching the production company about, well, she could do a tango in the middle. And then the producer's going, we're listening. So that's our t- catchphrase. Every time somebody from JLo's camp says, well, what if she also sings the theme song and does a, a, a pas de deux or some crazy dance? We're listening. So in, any, well, in other words, there's no, there are no bad ideas. But in The Boy Next Door, she play, which I love. Yes, remember that movie? An English teacher, an English teacher who has who is gifted an original edition of the Iliad, 
And then also just poses erotically in her window, like yeah. she's in a De Palma movie. We're listening. We what if she also posed in the window? We're listening. Exactly. <laughs> that production should be called We're Listening Productions. Anyway, that's the J-Lo of it all. We can move on. Um, <laughs> Drew, what movie would you like to talk about next? Uh, I would – I'd love to say now another movie that I thoroughly loved was Bones and All. Uh, Luca Guadagnino's uh, uh, just beautiful, haunting – I, 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 I'm again, something I've never seen in anything like, um, I, w- I, it was this weird matchup of horrifying, like gore with a very like eighties LA noir. Like it had a very like, um, near dark vibe to it. It also had a, it had a very queer, my own private Idaho vibe to right. it. But also there was this like Hansel and Gretel storybook vibe with a, Brilliant performance by Mark Rylance. Also, Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet are fantastic. I was just, like, in. And I thought it was just touching and, and funny and so upsetting. But it was really a movie about, about um, outsiders. And, 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 in, and in less brilliant hands, it could have been the cheesiest, most mawkish, stupid thing. And something that I could make fun of, like, you know, you or anybody would make fun of because it could be so, like, it, it, it's so delicate. It's about right. young love, but also outsiders. And it was just a very queer, it was, to me, it was the, it was the queerest movie of the year. And um, I was just, I was on board. I think it was beautiful. Uh, Glenn, what do you think about Bones and All? Oh, totally agree. I love this movie. I, like Tara, I've never seen a film like this. That yeah. did not follow any rules. It felt like Terrence Malick made a uh, horror film, and it really <laughs> kind of worked on both levels. It's very, it's got this beautiful scenery and this sort of tranquil, sun-dappled look to it, but then horrible things are happening. And the inciting incident in the movie in this pajama party sequence oh, shocked yeah. me like no other scene has in years. It's so shocking, and I was... I think I audibly made a very loud, ah, that sound. And uh, it's so beautifully acted. I also want to give a shout out to uh, the, the actor who plays Timothy Chalamet's sister in the film, who I think is incredible as well, who creates such a vivid character with so little screen time that you, you can anticipate things from her and things about what happens with her in the film and things. It's just, it's, I think it's so cool. It's a cool film to watch, and it's uh, certainly not for everyone because it is it piles on the gore. Right. I did watch it. I just wasn't as into it as you guys were. I I do like that filmmaker generally, um, and I will say I think Chalamet has it. I, I think he's not a flash in the pan. I think he's really special and 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 wonderful. And Mark Rylance is so good at giving you Greatest specific weird, quirky characters that it's oh. almost like a cliche that he's great in a way. It's almost like his, he's so good and quirky and different. You almost expect him, you expect sort of brilliance out of him every time in a way. Um, It's always different too. The first time I saw him on stage in a play called Jerusalem. And in my memory, he was seven feet tall in that play. Yeah. Wow. And he's a, a, a a shorter man. Like he's not that big of a person. And he, I just, and that's how I envisioned him. I, I feel like he reinvents yeah. Every time he works. Yeah. Well, I also want to give a shout out to Michael Stolberg, who is in one scene and, and is brilliant in the film as well. Yeah. Who's always great. And he's in so many of Guadagnino's movies and he's always just, he's fantastic. I love what they do together. 
And I, mean, I like I'm, the ending, though. I thought the ending delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Rylance's performance, though, I kept, I kept thinking, how did he approach this? I, I can't imagine where his mind went to get to those types of line readings. It is so unusual, and I can't figure out where, how did he build the life of that character? Because it is... I, he was ignored by the Academy, if you ask me. I thought that was... Oh, 100%. Great, great performance. And it was it was scary, and it was funny, and it was interesting, and it was... it was He, he really tapped into, like, the cruelty of other people and how they view his character. And I just thought that was so interesting. He, I couldn't take my eyes off him in that film. Um, give us another moment out of time, Glenn. Um, okay, I'm going to... Well, I'm going to keep in the horror genre for this one. Even though it doesn't feel like a horror film for quite a bit of its running time, it feels more like a comedy of manners, is a film called Speak No Evil. I don't know uh, this movie. It's, it's I don't a, pardon? I don't either. I don't know either. It, it's, it's currently streaming on the horror app, uh, Shudder. Uh, but uh, I got to see it at a screening. It's a Danish film uh, that is in the vein of Michael Haneke's Funny Games, if you've ever seen Ooh, that. Yeah, of uh, course. Where it's... It's a horror film, but it's really about human behavior. And in this film, it's a um, Danish couple, and it's a husband, wife, and their uh, daughter meet a Dutch couple, uh, husband, wife, and their son, on holiday in Italy. And months later, the Dutch couple invite them to come over from Denmark uh, to spend the weekend in their cabin. What could go wrong? Wow. When you Oh my God, I'm in. I, that sounds so good to me. I'm all over that. It's kind of a, the inverse of a home invasion thriller. And that's the point of the movie, which it's about what we allow ourselves to accept in bad behavior uh, at risk of being rude to the other person. That you allow somebody to cross lines because you don't want to be impolite and say, hey, that's, you're out of line. Don't say that. And the most of the running time of the movie is that in a, these these. Good people that allow themselves to get sucked into a situation that isn't necessarily good. And when it finally reveals itself of what this movie is, it's really horrifying. And it's uh, because this isn't a horror movie. This is just kind of a light comedy. And then you start, and I've watched it three times now. I'm like, oh, everything was set up for that. From the very first shot on, it's just like really puts its pieces together. It's a precisionally made film. Is it in English or is it another language? It's in several languages. I mean, it's Danish, Dutch, English, right. Italian in there. Uh, but there is, it's, it's really, the, the performances are magnificent. It does strain credibility in its final act. And I think I know what the director was going for, which is fairly offensive, actually, when you think about it. Because there's a, there's a bit of a Holocaust reference going on that I think is kind of offensive. But his point is still well observed. Interesting. Speak no evil. All right. Um, I think it's time to bring up the Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum movie, The Lost City, uh, an early um, early in last year movie that was on my dream board, and then I went and saw it. So I, it was a dream come true. But the Ooh. funny thing about it was, I think, Glenn, you saw it with me. Yeah. Drew, have you ever seen a movie in 4X, which is something that Regal Cinemas offer? It's where the chair moves. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, I saw saw a Final Destination movie like that. We just thought, okay, we'll try it. It's like an amusement park ride. We almost got thrown out of those seats. Those seats move so much. I know, it's so stupid. I hate (laughs) it. It's so stupid. I enjoy a movie. I like the movie. I don't need a ride. I know. Well, that's lesson learned. But um, (laughs) 
but so I went back and saw the movie again without being thrown from my chair. And I just enjoy those two actors. But here's something kind of funny about it. They, they had good chemistry, but more like brother and sister. Like they weren't a sexy couple, even though they're both sexy mm-hmm. people. You didn't feel like they fucked in that hammock. Um, you know, but I just like watching them and there were some, some fun, um, set pieces and, you know, uh, when they danced together in the thing, I liked that. And, you know, I, it was a good, uh, romancing the stone kind of throwback movie. So yeah, I'm into it. All I remember is thinking, why don't these chairs have seatbelts? Yeah. Cause you were, <laughs> I know you were like ready to file a lawsuit. You were like, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was actually dangerous. Yeah. I thought. There could be actual contusions and broken bones. I mean, and, uh, and it took it. I took. I was completely thrown out of that film, and it may have been charming. I don't know. Yeah. I was just good about the death. <laughs> you were holding on for dear life. Uh, so I was. I have to say, I was. I was also. I watched this movie on a plane. Perfect. And I remember it being a very turbulent flight, and I don't fly well, so I was also hanging on to my seat for dear life when I watched this movie. <laughs> I love those two actors. I love them in many, in, yeah. in many things. Uh, I also love Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, I yeah, love I forgot. Gang. I love the, Patty Harrison. There's so many great, fantastic people in this movie. I did not smile once. I was so irritated by what it was trying to be. And Romancing the Stone is one of my, like, maybe top ten movies of ever. Yeah. Like, I mean, I love it that much. So maybe that's what it is. I think that's, like, a, a, a perfect script. Um, and I just was like, what are they, what, was this movie noted to death? Because there's so much talent in this movie and they are really, they are really charming together. I agree. They are like more like brother and sister, but I just, I just found the jokes way too overcooked and I felt like too many people noted them and I just, I found it way too deliberate. Well, the second it. time I saw it after the 4DX experience, I did notice that it had a lot of those jokes that you could tell were written afterwards that were looped in. When yeah. somebody's back was turned, like that really jumped out at me the second time. And I'm like, maybe this isn't as clever as I thought uh, when, when I seen it the first time. So, also, yeah. Brad Pitt, I mean, it's, oh, it's been he was funny long. in it. He's great, but yeah. he's in the entire trailer and then he dies so early. And yeah. you're like, you, you blew your wad. Yeah. I mean, sorry, spoiler, if you haven't seen it already, but you know, yeah. Well, he gave, he gave them two days and that was what that they was did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Drew, what's another movie you'd like to talk about? Um, I will, uh, I will go over to a movie that I, that I, uh, loved, uh, women talking. Right I on. thought was, I thought was a, I mean, a brilliant script. Uh, I love, I mean, you know, it, it, it's truth in advertising. And at that, if, you know, it, it's just people sitting around in a barn discussing, what are we going to do? It was a very simple setup, uh, with very complicated emotional stakes involved. I loved that. Allegiance has changed. I love that you found out information about about these women and and Ben Wishaw, who gave a beautiful performance. I thought, um, but I mean, oh my God! I I I, mean, I I just I don't know who I would single out about that. I, all I know is a full disclosure: who is getting my vote for SAG Best Ensemble of the Year is is the cast of Women Talking because all of them from Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy. Sheila McCarthy, uh, Judith Ivy, I mean, you know, Rooney Mara, like it was just uh, uh, Francis McDormand, like so many brilliant performances. And it was, and what I loved about it, and what I love about Sarah Pauly, who I think is one of our greatest living filmmakers, is that she makes a new, she really has conquered so many different genres, but she takes this very serious subject matter that's very much in the popular zeitgeist 
and made it funny. Like, I was laughing a lot in that movie in a way that I wasn't expecting to. I was expecting to, like, get a homework movie. And instead I was gained by it. And then it has one of the most beautiful sequences in the middle. You know, when you don't really know what year it is, there are kind of references to the modern age. And then there's a beautiful, you know, um, monkey's song in the middle with it. And it's just, like, takes you out of the world. And I was was thoroughly in. I loved it. Uh, I loved it as well. I... I thought it was so cinematic for a movie yeah. that's in a small scale. I just thought it, every detail was thought through and rich. I loved the older woman. I guess Sheila McCarthy might be her name. Sheila McCarthy. You took out her teeth? Amazing. She's yeah, amazing. Right. I, I've never loved Rooney Mara more than in this movie. I've always found Same. her kind of chilly. And I thought, she's Same. the heart of this movie. And, right. yeah. and I agree. It's that experience of like, I guess I'm going to pop in this movie because it's supposed to be good. It's, it feels like it's eating your vegetables. And then you're like, oh, I am into this. Yeah. I am into it. I like the score, everything about it. I hope it wins things. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's only got two nominations, Best Picture and Best Screenplay. But it deserves I think she it. might yeah. win Screenplay. I think she's got a shot Maybe. at that. Yeah. I think so, yeah. too. It's, um, I think it's a brilliant film as well. And that moment that, Drew, you described about the monkey scene is my moment out of time for the movie. Right. It, it took it into a different t- context. And this film, when I'm watching it, I actually almost walked out in the first 10 minutes. Because I'm like, it's so stilted. And when is this taking place? What is, like, I was really lost for about 10 minutes. And then something kicked in. And it was with Frances McDormand's performance. And she's hardly in the movie. Yeah. But she leaves such an impact on the film because of the position her character takes in it. That I went, you know what? I'm sticking with this. And as it went along, I was like, oh, my God. I'm so glad I didn't leave. This is great. And by the end, I was stood and applauded. It, it was like, wow, this movie worked hard to win me over. And it is. For a movie that takes place in a barn, it's really cinematic. Sarah Pauly knows her space and how to direct space. And it's not just set in the barn. There's so many incredibly shot sequences outside of that barn, and whether it's in a flashback or, you know, in the, the code of the film that gives it the sweep that I did not expect it to have. I think it is a terrific, really great piece of work. Yay for women talking. Um, I'm going to bring up a movie that was, I believe, on Hulu first. Good luck to you, Leo Grande, with um, Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormack, I think might be the name of the actor. He was a real discovery. It's about a a middle-aged woman in England who, I guess, has lost her husband. She's either divorced or widowed. Um, and has never really explored her sexuality, and she hires a young um, escort to work with her or, or to explore. And it's basically them in a hotel room over several meetings. And I just like things that are honest about sex. I wish I had had more of that in my life. I feel like that's a theme that uh, we just, as a culture, just never get right when we're especially dealing with young people. And I just like when things finally take on something that everybody has, everybody has some relationship to this thing. And we're going to all act like we don't, or I don't know, whatever. And I love that actor. He was a real discovery. Like I thought he really held his own uh, with Emma Thompson and wasn't, he was, he was physically beautiful. So you believe it, but he was really, um, I thought a, a really powerful actor as well. And, I have a friend that at the end of the movie, Emma Thompson is, takes off all her clothes and stands in front of a mirror. 
And I have one friend who's like, I really like that movie, but why does she have to do that? Like, he really had a problem with that moment. Oh, and I was God. like, that's the point. That's yeah. the point. But, like, it's come up several times when we were talking about it over several different uh, conversations. Like, he can't let go of that moment. And she blew it all. And I was like, wow, I think that's the point of the movie in a way. Um, but anyway. I, I haven't, I haven't, I sadly have not seen that movie yet. Yeah, I'm curious to see what you think. Ever. She's great. But I, I already great. know that that's the point of that movie. <laughs> and I think that that's why women feel invisible at a certain age and they, or they feel like their bodies, bodies aren't good enough. So to have someone go, why did she do that? Right. I think, I know? think it took him out of the movie in a way, or I don't know what, I don't think it was that I don't need to see that. It was more, I don't know what it was about. I was confused by it. Because I felt like it was underscoring everything that had come before. Like this is we're 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 opening up here, and this is part of it. And well, you're it, right; we don't talk about how we wish we had more sex. Movies are all like so sex, 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 and they tell you you're expect to have it, and, and it's supposed to, to come, come they, off without a hitch. Everything works the way it's supposed right, to work. Right, right. Everyone exactly like, they, knows what like, to do. So yeah. much more complicated than that, and right. it's not something that always drives us and we're sort of like am i wrong because everything i'm watching is telling me i should be wanting this and kids are taught you know yeah, yeah i can't wait to see it and i'm so sorry that i haven't seen it because i that is definitely on my list to watch. yeah it's good and uh he's he's dynamite too um and and it's poignant and it's you you could tell it's one of those covid movies that they made because nobody ever had to go anywhere and you know but it it's yeah. it's uh i'm glad it I, i'm glad it got made and i I, I really enjoyed it. What about you, Glenn? Did you see that one? Yeah, I liked it. It, it reminded me of Same Time Next Year with nudity and something more in oh, mind than just, you know, uh, two people having sex in a room. Right. You know, it really does get into uh, the, our, our, um, our judgment of sex workers, um, our uh, not really seeing their lives. And yeah. I think that it does a really good job of peeling back the onion layers on that guy's life. Uh, and makes him a person, a living, breathing person. And I thought Emma Thompson was fantastic. Um, it didn't stick with me, I've got to be honest. It's, yeah. it's, it's fine. I enjoyed watching it. I'm glad I did. I think their performances were terrific. Uh, but it's, it's not going to be a memorable all-timer moment film yeah. for me. All right, fair enough. So another film of mine that I thought was um, criminally overlooked by the Academy this year, because I think it... Uh, as much as I appreciate Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yao, I think that this next film deserves some Best Actor nomination here. Uh, the film is Pearl, and I think Mia Goth deserved a nomination. And just because it's a horror film, kind of a slasher film, actually, um, it, it you know it's the presumed quality of it gets downgraded. And I thought that this was blissfully cinematic in its Technicolor Wizard of Oz way. And Ty West, I think, grew leaps and bounds from even earlier in the year when he did X, which I enjoyed. But I thought that was nowhere near the level of Pearl and this sort of baby Jane psychosis of this deluded character who you see her just melt down and you see almost every Hollywood actor that you've ever known who's gone through bad times and auditions in this character. It's kind of like the downtrodden part of uh, uh, Mulholland Drive when you see Naomi Watts, you know, in alone in her apartment and feeling terrible uh, for, you know, two solid technicolor, crazy, gory, uh, insane hours, you know, and it reminded me of the, the, the kind of 
trashy movies of the 70s with Shelley Winters, like Who Slew Auntie Rue or What's the Matter with Helen, that it really just leaned into this sort of kind of trashy quality uh, where she is this uh, young woman, and it's during the flu pandemic of 1917, so the COVID uh, narrative is right there in front of you, and uh, she wants to be a dancer in, you know, this new uh, thing called cinema. And she wants to get out of her horrible environment in her town and, you know, make it as a dancer. And she'll do anything to do it. She will kill everybody in her path. And uh, it's setting up the psychosis of the older character, Pearl, from the movie X. And now we'll have a sequel called Maxine uh, that Mia Goth will star in because she played the character Maxine in X. And I think it was just so riveting to look at this film and watch it and listen to this crazy melodramatic score. Uh, I, I've seen it three times now, and I just am very taken by it. I have not seen that movie. Have you seen it, Drew? I have, and I loved it. I thought I, I, I am a huge Ty West fan. I mean, he's the House filmmaker, the right? Ty West is the filmmaker. I'm sorry, he's the, the filmmaker. filmmaker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He did. I mean, his film House of the Devil. If you haven't seen that, you must. That is a. It is. It, it is quintessential. It's one of the, my favorite horror movies ever. Um, and I, I, I also loved X. I. I had it on my list, both of them on my list, because I just thought they were really completely out of the box, uh, but with the, with such a with such nods to filmmaking, with respect to independent filmmaking, with respect to pornography, with respect to horror, with all, with showing like such humanity and all of that, which he can do like in a way that with you don't ever expect, you don't always expect in the in these other in these genres. Um, I thought her monologue at, at the end that like was like what was it like an eight minute monologue that she gives was riveting. I, I Mia Goth is, was a genius. She's definitely on my list of greatest performances of the year. Absolutely deserved an Oscar nomination. She it reminded me very much of uh, Shelley Duvall. Uh, there was this. Uh, there's this like there's this this broken, uh, fragile quality yet could snap and turn on a dime, and you're like, don't feel okay within the presence of this person, like you want to take care of this person, but you're also just like, am I walking into a lion's den by, by inviting her into my life? I love what it said about Hollywood and broken dreams. And, and the cinematography was unbelievable in Pearl. It was just gorgeously shot. Um, and so I, I loved it. I love that he made two movies that came out in the same year and they were yeah. both great. And this is the movie that'll make you want to fuck a scarecrow. Oh, well, I, I already wanted to, so. So which but one do that, I need to see first, X and then Pearl? Yeah. Or does it matter? Okay. Yeah, I mean, they're they're not, you don't really have to see, but they, I recommend watching them both. They're both very different stylistically, but it's interesting how. There, um, there are certain plot elements that X is the better one to watch first, because when yeah. you see the, you recognize them in Pearl, you go, ah, that's what's going on here. But uh uh, what's great about it is because she co-wrote the movie, Mia Goth. They were in New Zealand shooting X, and because of COVID, I think they were stuck down there. And I think she wrote it as a character exploration because she plays two roles in X. And uh, I think she kind of did it as like a side thing, like, and then brought it to Ty West. And he's like, this is the movie. We got yeah, I heard that they, they finished here. ahead of schedule on X. What I heard that I read is they, they had extra time. And it was just them, and yeah, they were stuck in there. They were like, let's just do another movie. So they did it kind of back-to-back. Which and is, they couldn't be more stylistically different. I know. Yeah, that's amazing. What an achievement. It shows, yeah, it shows Ty, Ty West's enormous range. When you look at this sort of um, grindhouse 70s movie about porn, 
And then you see this one that's clearly an homage to The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, The Searchers and other films that are these big, grand visual technicolor extravaganzas. And you just go, this same guy made both. This is really impressive. Yeah. Uh, so next on my list, I tend to focus on movies that I feel kind of got lost in the shuffle or that I really enjoyed, but that maybe aren't Oscar bait. But I really love the movie She Said, and it didn't get a lot of love at the at the end of the year. I don't think it did great at the box office, but... I thought it was really tight procedural thing about journalists breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. I liked the way they were – they had a personal life, but it wasn't the husband going, you, you weren't home to make dinner. Like it wasn't that cliche. Like yeah. they were busy professionals, yeah. and you didn't have those cliche scenes. And there's one scene where Carrie Mulligan is one of the journalists, and she's been talking to all of these women who have been uh, raped and abused and oppressed, and this – Jerk hits on her in a bar or kind of like taunts her in a bar and she unloads on him. And you can feel you can feel the rage from promising young woman is still in there. Like and it's chilling, but it is real. Like I was like, oh, man, that moment was powerful. I thought she was so good in it. And I just thought the the story unfolded very economically. It was very thoughtful. And I like I like movies about journalism and uh, something good happening, like good people triumphing over, you know, Harvey Weinstein. And uh, I thought it was sort of underrated. I thought it was was uh, really good. So that's my, my uh, she said, thoughts. So sorry I haven't seen that one either. I missed it. and It's good. It's solid. It. Yeah. I love all those people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everyone's good in it. Yeah. What I really, the, the, the scene that you described, Dennis, is my moment out of time for the film because I think Carrie Mulligan is brilliant in that moment. And it, catches you by surprise the level of her rage right um, and yet it's just it's correct for it's that moment. Yeah. yeah and you're you're seeing what all these women who encountered harvey weinstein have dealt with for um, years yeah and that you see it in that moment for how this guy treats carrie mulligan in the bar and it's it's a powerhouse of a film, I think. And it's uh, also just harkens back to all the president's men and that you're watching two journalists basically just make phone calls and file rifle through files. And yet it's done in a way that's riveting. And I know they studied that film when they were making this, because I heard a story that the uh, one sheet for the film was a actual posed photograph that emulates the one sheet from all the president's men. Oh, oh interesting. sitting on a desk with Dustin Hoffman. Right. You look at the two of them, you go, yeah, that they, it echoes. They could have easily pulled a still just from the film itself, but they wanted to get this right. And Who's the British actress that has the one scene? There's a couple of them that have like smaller roles, but they, they're amazing. Samantha Morton, I think. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Powerhouse. And, yeah. Uh, and there was another one, an Irish actress, I think. Um, but everyone's really good in it. And I, when I first started in journalism and interviewing people, it was the 90s. So I interviewed so many of Harvey Weinstein's victims around the time that they were making movies. Sama Hayek, Ashley Judd, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Rose McGowan. And uh, I always had good experiences with them. And, and I think they liked me and they opened up to me. And not about that, but in general, I just felt like I had a good rapport with them. And and I thought later, I was like, why did these actresses, why did I do well with these actresses back then? And I thought, and I saw this movie and hearing all these stories, I thought, you know what? I was probably the only meeting that day 
where they didn't feel like they might get raped. You know what I mean? Like they were dealing with this stuff. I didn't, you know, I had no idea that what was going on behind the scenes. And I thought, and maybe this gay, this young gay journalist that seems kind of nice is, is a respite from that. If that's the rest of their thing, because the list is long of those actresses that I talked to during that time when it was all going on. I remember interviewing Gwyneth Paltrow and I'm funny enough. I'm looking at a picture right now of her and I, that I have in this group frame in my room um, for the, the movie Emma was about to come out or it had come out and she was in a suite in New York and she was signing soft cover books of the, of the book Emma to give to golden globe voters Wait, what? So I was I was sent to New York to interview Gwyneth Paltrow. Signing Jane Austen's book, she Emma? Was signing him <laughs> to send a Golden Globe view, view, God, uh, voters because Harvey Weinstein wanted her to. And it was like she had to do this. So so while we're talking, she's signing book after book of Emma to send to Golden Globe voters. Yeah. Which, she's you know... Of Jane Austen, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but um, well, that's what I mean. It's like here. I mean, I get that they, they I'm, her face is on the cover of the book. They use right. the movie poster to sell the book, but it's so weird. Well, it was just I think his the lengths he would go to to yeah. in this in this in this yeah. uh, sweepstakes of, of awards. You know, he was he was the one that made it sort of so cutthroat. So anyway, she said, "Worth a look." Um, really well, good. You, go, you can go back and see who won Oscars in the nineties and two thousands and just see like, Oh, that's why. Yeah. Cause that monster forced that had to happen because they didn't deserve that over so-and-so yeah. like, you know, and it's like, you can get it. We can make a whole podcast about that. But I mean, like he forced the hand of many voters. Yeah. The power. Of that. Yeah. Shakespeare in love over saving private Ryan, probably the biggest example. Whoa. Um, uh, old mountain. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Um, all right, Drew, give us another movie that you feel like talking about. Oh, I want to talk about one of my favorite uh, just revelations of a comedy that I thought was eviscerating and brilliant. Um, bodies, bodies, bodies. I didn't I see it. it. Oh, oh, it is. I think it is. I, I will go so far as to say it's our, it's a modern day Heathers. Right it on. Is, truly rotten human beings uh, <laughs> who are gathered together at a, at a home. And it is a horror movie, and it becomes a horror movie, but I found it to be just an excellent comedy. I thought it, it said so much about about Gen Z, about the culture that we're in. I also think there's a performance. Rachel Sennett in this film is, I think, I, the next Parker Posey. I, I, she can do no wrong. I love her in everything she's in. But this really showcases what she does so specifically and so specially. I love Pete Davidson. I loved, uh, I mean, everybody, everybody in it is great. Um, um, oh, my God, why am I blanking on his name? Hot, gay, tall. Who Help me out. Pushing Daisies. Yeah, just- Lee Pace. Lee Pace. Uh, yeah. Lee Pace, uh, brilliant. Like, I, everybody in that, I just was like, this... I I was there. I What's was it about? In, what happens in it? It's a group of friends in a house, and they start getting killed, and they're playing, you know, and, you know, they're all horrible. I mean, that's pretty much the plot of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's a movie where you actually, and again, to be like as someone who roots for Rebecca DeMorte and Hannah Rex Cradle, I was rooting for all of them to die. Right. Like, I wanted, I was like, yes, yes, yes. And the reveal I did not see coming. It has a, it has a whopper of a reveal. 
that I, it's so hard, I think, to in horror movies now to like have do something new with that of like what was actually happening. Um, and, um, it did remind me of another movie that I'm not going to say because that would spoil the ending, but I thought it was, it, which is not nearly as good of a movie, but I thought it was incredible. Did you see that movie, Glenn? And I've been waiting for a moment during this podcast for this to happen because last year, um, I loved Power of the Dog and Drew hated it, but then afterwards he watched but it. But then you changed my mind. Right. And then I loved it. So Drew, the opposite has happened here today because I hated this movie. My review title was, for it was Who Dumb It? Uh, <laughs> out of respect for you, I'm going to watch it again and I bet you changed my mind because there are things about it that I do love. And that ending especially, I think, is so clever that it's worth building the movie around because I thought what it had to say about Gen Z with that ending is just so smart. And I do like Rachel Sennett a lot. Um, my problem was that, like you, I was rooting for everybody to die, but I wasn't I wasn't happily watching that. <laughs> it's like, oh, just die and get this over with and let me leave, right? And, you know, while I, I understood what it was trying to do and what it was going for, um, I wanted them all to shut up and stop screaming. And it, I just found it annoying. But now listening to you talk about it, clearly it's intentionally annoying. It wants you to feel this way. And so I'm thinking, you know what? I bet this is smarter than I've given it credit for. So I'm going to be happy to change my mind. Well, I'm just happy you're going to watch it again. But I, I don't, I, I, I hope, I know, I thought the screenplay, I think it's one of the best screenplays of the year, but I, I know that. It, you know, I, it, it's, yeah, you have to go, you kind of have to go, oh, wait, we really do. There's also, I mean, so uh, there's some cruelty and then emotional cruelty in this movie. You go, no, because you think you're going to like some of them. And it, it just, I love that reveal too, a, as well, because it's, it's a, it's also a very queer movie and yeah. the, you, know, you get really upset about how, how um, the two women treat each other at one point, especially. I was like, what are you doing to her? Um, but, I found the whole thing so satisfying. And I thought, like, I thought it was refreshing to see Lee Pace have a role like this because he usually, his characters usually take themselves very seriously. And he is just this stoner delight in this one. Oh, fantastic. He was so much fun to watch in the film that it, you know, God damn it. Now I'm going to change my mind and like. <laughs> I love it. I love that. As the, as President Biden said in his State of the Union, we love a conversion. Is that what he said? Something like that. Yeah, he was trying to say conversation, but he said conversion. No, I think he meant a conversion. Like he was winning oh, really? people over. He's winning oh. people over to protecting Medicare and Social Security. That's another podcast. But okay. um, Glenn, what's another moment at a time? I'm going to talk about my least favorite movie of the year. Okay. Uh, and But in context of the subject matter being done masterfully in something else. Okay. So one I know Drew hasn't seen, one I know he has, so I think we can have a conversation here. So my my nominee for Worst Film of the Year is The Menu, um, which I saw a second time because everybody I know loves that movie. So I thought, okay, I'll give it another shot. You know, I'll be open-minded like about bodies, bodies, bodies. No, I still stand by that this is the worst movie of the year. It's a film that I had such high hopes for, and that's why it's at the bottom of my list. Because I thought it had a great trailer. It has a great cast. Uh, the director comes from directing Succession. I just thought, oh, I can't wait to see this. This looks really smart. And... uh um, man, did I just feel deflated very early on and it and never recovered where I thought it was juvenile and it was trying to make points about the one percenters, but 
I just don't think that the jokes were funny. I thought the characters were just one note. And I just thought it was an immature piece of filmmaking. And even still, there's a moment out of the film that I love, which is Anya Taylor-Joy telling Nicholas Holt to not say the word mouthfeel, which is in the trailer. So watch the trailer. You'll get the best of it. Um, it it just uh, was so... Just I just thought it was stupid. I remember you turning me at the end of the screen, Dennis, and he goes, that was dumb. I thought it was <laughs> dumb. I don't like to be that mean, but man, I just was not on board with that movie. Not not at all. Maybe Judith yeah. Light, but who didn't have anything to do, she really. Barely used it. I know. Yes. Oh, um, but yeah, I wasn't yet, into it. And yet a movie that attacks the 1% brilliantly from in my mind is Triangle of Sadness. And I always just tell people, watch that instead. It's just, it hits its target. It knows what it's talking about. Whereas the menu, I just thought, I don't believe what I'm watching. I don't believe these characters would behave this way. They're trying to make a point similar to the movie Speak No Evil in that uh, people, privileged people, won't speak up when things are not going right. They'll just kind of allow stuff to happen to them. And yet you don't buy that any of this is happening. And that's my problem with it is that this isn't based in real truth. It's just based in in satire. And satire without honesty and truth to me falls flat. Well, in order for this sinister thing to be unfolding in this movie, all of these things have to happen. All of these people have to go along with it. All of the assistants to the chef. Like, there's all of these piling on of, like, sort of things that have to be a certain way and believe a certain thing. And I just... I, I wasn't making the leap, but um, it, it looked kind of cool. I like, I liked that, that it was an original idea. I liked that it had something on its mind, but I just was not on the ride. But I, I did love Triangle of Sadness. I've seen, I've seen it twice. And the second time I saw it, I laughed out loud more because I, I the first time I kind of was like, oh, that's what this is. And then the second time I was really able to laugh at it more because there were just so many squirmy, squirmy moments. And I just thought, Boy, he knows how to put these people in uncomfortable, revealing situations. And the line of dialogue that somebody says is the perfect line to get that reaction. The word choices, like, especially the dynamic between the two models and the sort of gender roles. And, like, that one word that she uses that pushes that button, like, I just thought it was so um, spot on in its execution. What did you think of Triangle of Sadness, Drew? Oh, I, I, I loved it. I have not laughed like I was 13 years old again. Like I, I like, it was honestly like the first time I saw female trouble or like, you know, when you're going or, or like, or Monty Python meaning of life, the Mr. Creosote scene where you're just watching bodily fluids portrayed. So, I mean, I love when, I mean, I do love seeing people in power getting taken down and and to their grossest. When it's involving vomit and diarrhea, I'm on board. Yeah. And I, and when it's well done because, and it didn't feel juvenile, it felt like, oh, you need to see like for as awful as they have been to each other and to their spouses and to the health and to the world. And, um, you know, these are like basically like warmongers and just awful people. I love seeing them in so much pain. I, I've not laughed like that. I was, crying laughing at it um i also thought the first piece was so brilliant because you know you're playing you these these two people and there's this debate about paying the bill that goes on for so long that i kept switching sides and when i'm like well she's clearly an asshole and by the end i'm like no he's being an asshole because he won't let it go and it's like 
I, it's such an interesting social experiment, I think, to show that movie and be like, at what point do you switch sides or do you ever switch sides about who's at fault for this? And then I thought the third piece with the brilliant performance by Dolly De Leon, which is, again, about how power corrupts and how her character, she kind of comes out of nowhere. You kind of see established early on that you don't think she's going to have this moment in this movie, becomes arguably like what the movie's all about. And um, I also thought, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but the actor who played um, the the older man who with on the on this, the, the Russian to, I mean, guy, the uh, Russian guy, amazing. His performance is amazing. Gave that that combination, and when he is on the shore with his wife, the sadness. Talk about title, like he just the devastation. And then stealing her jewelry that, that was, it said everything about who that character was. There was so much excellent behavior that was happening when the, in the, in the, the writing was smart enough to just show you these people. And, um, and the satire was, was incredibly well done because it did feel like this is what would happen had they been stranded on an island, you know? And I love when they ask him if he has any special skills and he's like, no, I have none. Like we're not equipped. And, um, it, it it didn't feel too cheeky to me, and I I, I I'm confounded by the ending. I'm going to watch it again and sort of track that. But I I loved this movie. Yeah, the yeah, final was... shot is kind of mysterious, but um, I think it works. Um, but it, it does kind of leave you scratching your head a little bit. But on the second viewing, I was like, okay, I I I, I felt it. Um, I think I think that final shot is just talking about the chaos. I, yeah. I don't. I don't trying to make a conclusion you know we don't really know what happens but if you uh watch any interviews with dolly de leon she has a very specific point of view of what really happens oh really i haven't seen that yeah yeah so you know she she's hilarious and uh she's so good in the film yeah uh, she was overlooked for damn sure for sure wow. but um, uh my moment out of time was this that that the elevator scene following the restaurant scene uh, where it just continues. That argument just keeps going, and he's holding the doors open as yeah. he keeps shouting. Um, but I thought of another one that just made me laugh out loud uh, while we were talking about this, is that doddering old couple who's the trope of the, oh, look at the sweet old people, when they're warmongers. Yes, they, when they the, invent um, hand grenades. Hand grenades and man, and man, man, one of the yeah. hand grenades falls on the deck of their boat. The first reaction the wife has is, oh, I think this is one of ours. <laughs> Which I just think is so brilliant. Well, it's so in some ways it's so broad in that way, and yet it works. Like, like, but yet the menu, which maybe is doesn't have a, a hand grenade landing by the person that invented the hand grenade, yet it doesn't work. I don't know why it works so well. That something about that filmmaker's uh, sense of I don't know irony or whatever. It just it lands. Mm-hmm. My favorite uh, actor this second time watching it was this one cabin steward girl that works for the ship and one of the the rich women are trying to get her to sit in the hot tub with her because it yeah. it makes her feel the rich one's like you should be with us we're all the same be in the hot tub but yeah. she's like i'm working i can't do it and it goes on for like 10 minutes and the girl's face for like trying to please the customer but she can't get in the hot tub if she gets in the hot tub she'll get in trouble but she has the customer's always right and it won't and it goes on and on and i'm like because she's not a big enough name to have gotten offered that role. She had to go in and audition, probably with that scene. And she just captures every awkward, squirmy moment. And I was like, oh, scene stealer right there. Just trying to avoid getting into the hot tub because this crazy, you know, Russian gazillionaire wants you to. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I thought about why the menu doesn't work just now, and I don't know. I'm going to throw. Did we this solve out. the problem of the menu? I don't know. We'll see. You can <laughs> check it down if you like. Um, the delineation between the haves and the haves nots in Triangle of Sadness is very clear. Yes. Right. You got the upstairs, downstairs For dynamic. Sure. In the menu, they're all haves. Even the Ray Fiennes character, he's a celebrity chef. He's famous, so and he's rich. And so it's like, who are we aiming at here? And yeah, there's who, nobody in that movie that sort of represents normal people, right? Well, Anya Taylor-Joy does, admit Kind of, yeah. But, um, but well, you've got a problem with all love to Anya Taylor-Joy when she's who's supposed to represent normal people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I agree. Like, there's something rarefied just about her, who she, how she looks, her beauty, and really? her... Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Um, there was another favorite moment of mine in Triangle of Sadness after, in the third act, there's like the sort of junior captain that, that, that ends up on the island and she goes to Dolly De Leon, who is a, you know, the, the oversees the toilet cleaning. And she's basically trying to lord over her still, like, because I'm your boss. And Dolly De Leon's like, we're not on that boat anymore, bitch. You know what I mean? And you could see the woman trying to lord over her with her power yeah, and seeing, yeah. like, is this going to work? Is it going right. to work anymore? Like, we all remember who yeah. we really are. And Dolly De Leon's like, nope. No. <laughs> Sell that shit somewhere else, sister. There's a new sheriff yeah. in town. It's so good. It's Captain Phillips all over again. I am the captain now. Uh, right? Yeah. <sighs> All right, guys, I think we're going to hit pause on this conversation and end part one now. But we've got lots more coming up in part two of our movie roundup. All right, so this happened. Okay, so not long ago, I was doing another project, and I was on a Zoom call with somebody that I was meeting just to discuss things. And they asked about my background, and I talked about working on cruise ships uh, in my early 20s. And they remarked that when they were a teenager, they're now probably in their 40s, but when they were a teenager, maybe 50s, uh, they went on a princess cruise in the early 80s, like 83. And, and the person shared this really interesting story about the cruise. Now, Princess was the company that I worked for, but I started later than, than this person was remembering. So he's on this cruise. It's just him and his mom. And he talked about this male vocalist who did this number early in the cruise during his cabaret where he talked about the character of Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof. And while he was sort of explaining the character in the story, he's getting into the makeup and the beard and the hat or whatever it is to play the character. So by the time he finishes the setup, he has transformed himself. And then he performs If I Were a Rich Man and he brings down the house. So this is the story this guy's telling me. And he said that he and his mother loved that number so much that his mother started a petition on the boat to make sure that this singer sang it again before the cruise was over. And, and it happened. And um, the guy also said that the singer was nice enough to spend some time talking with him about performing because the guy was, uh, you know, wanted to be an actor and was into drama class and everything like that. And that this male singer really made a difference on their cruise. He made the whole cruise for them. And the Tevian number sounded kind of familiar. I feel like I'd seen that in my in my cruising days back then. Somebody did that. And I asked the guy if he remembered the name of the singer. And he said he didn't, but he remembered it was the same as a president, as a president of the United States. Like, that's the only fact he could remember. But then he, got, he gets confused. And so um, 
we go about the rest of our meeting, conversation, whatever, and at the end of it, I go, oh, you know what? I think I know who your singer was. I worked with a male guest entertainer called Carter James, and his real given name was Jimmy Carter. And I think that might be his guy. And the guy's eyes got really wide, like he'd seen a ghost, and he was like, oh, my God, that's him, that's him, that's him. And so we solved the mystery of the, the singer that, that made the big difference for him. And after the phone call, I, I went through all, my photo album from that whole cruise, and I could find one picture of Carter. And I emailed it to the guy that I had the conversation with and said, I think this is your guy. And he, and he said it was. And um, in the picture, it's a group of us. But we had this thing that we like to do back in the day called dead tourist photos. So we would be standing in front of, you know the Statue of Liberty or something, and we just all pretend to be dead, just laying on the steps or whatever. That was like our bit. Uh, but he's Carter's the only one not doing it in the picture. The rest of us are all laying there dead, and he's just on the bus, like, looking at the camera. And luckily he did, because that's the only picture I had to send to this person all these years later. Sadly, I think Carter is no longer with us. I don't know for sure all the details about that, but um, I love that I was able to solve that mystery for that guy. And I also love the story about how he still remembers and how he and his mom talked about that, how special that was for such a long time. So I'm not sure what the moral of that story is. I guess things matter and things are connected. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes, JB Bursey for uploading them. My music is by Mark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.